once came another man. Style of tall. Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young uh, superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely, extremely Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. And I felt be down in flames. I felt my style. I felt in sense of my style and skills. I only do so. From a distance. Uh, okay, Gopal, January 2023, uh, hashtag new year, new you. Uh, if by Gopal you mean uh, Julia Johnson from the Perpetual Feels Chess Podcast, how are you doing? <laughs> new year, new you. I'm doing great. And we have kind of a fun topic today, I think. Um, it goes a little bit in line with um, the theme of self-improvement and New Year's resolutions. By the way... Um, I made zero New Year's resolutions. Did you make any? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, since we're so good at that, I figure we should go ahead and jump right into an interesting theme, kind of on on topic in that regard, which you suggested and I really liked as soon as the words escaped your mouth, which was underrated aspects of chess improvement. Yes. It sounds even better escaping your supple mouth. <laughs> what dropped this idea into your vast expanse of a brain? Well, you know, I like anything I do, uh, like with the like passionately, I, I want to try to get to the bottom or like find the truth of like whatever it is I'm trying to do. Cause like, you know, you think about when you started playing chess, um, you know, you'd see all these like amazing things and, I've just, I've heard people say, oh, you know, I could never do that. Or like, I can't beat this person. I, I, I always wanted to think there was nothing that I couldn't do. Like as corny, uh, as trite as that sounds, you know, that's kind of what, where that came from. Isn't there like some famous chess quote about how, you know, at its essence, chess is a search for truth. Right. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, Gufeld even wrote, uh, a book like that chess the search for or no that was the search for mona lisa right because he referred to his game as with bagirov as his mona lisa oh interesting i had not heard of that one yeah yeah so i i i'm kind of the same way i like to find uh the essence of things and um understand the the truth of the matter yeah. I, i'm really i'm really kind of excited to talk about our list so let's just jump right in yeah. So these are some things that, that we thought, you know, we came up with and discussed that are... During our two, three-minute preparation? Oh, come on. Don't, don't short-shoot us. It was at least three and a half minutes. Okay. Um, we're, as, we're as good at making New Year's resolutions as we are preparing. So Yes. I, I mean, uh, I'm as good at preparing for the podcast as I do for my tournament games. Um, right. <laughs> anyway... Uh, Remember there was like a, uh, like a year long period where all of my prep for tournament games was just like asking you what you thought about a line, like two minutes before walking into the room. 
right with when we're both like slumped on the bed yes like like sitting somewhat dead tired from playing in these american opens yeah right yes you have no time to grab an apple even Um, right you just have to go to your hotel room and get your laptop out and look at a chess line for like 30 seconds and then ask someone's opinion for the remaining 90 seconds oh yeah and then we'd have our laptops like on our stomachs a la grandmaster nicola mitkov yes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay um very good so the first item on our list which um i'm very curious to hear your thoughts about i'm a big believer in games collections and i'll explain what i mean by that and then let you pop in um a games collection you know some of the the new chess generation i'm curious if they even have like interaction with this particular thing or if it's a chess relic of the past and by new chess revolution i'm sort of referring to like COVID, Queen's Gambit, Binge, Chess Players, Onwards. Right. A games collection is uh, is a book, um, either a biography usually or autobiography, one of the two usually, um, where a player will examine uh, a, a set of their own best games. You know, like Bobby Fischer's best games is a pretty famous one. Capablanca's My Chess Career, Vasily Smyslaw's My Best Games. Um, you know, you can go on and on. A lot of them are autobiographical, so you'll hear mm-hmm. the players' thoughts. Yeah, we can um, talk about the favorites, too. Yes, I, absolutely. Some of them are biographical, so you know, an author will uh, talk about um, a particular player and, and analyze their games. Um, and some of them don't focus on one player, but perhaps focus on a tournament. Um, a good example might be uh, one of my personal favorite games collections, Zurich International 1953. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's Which like one? a... The one by Bronstein. Ah, okay. Yes. Um, so uh, there's a there's a lot of options for game collections, but that's what they are. Um, so, Gopal, what are your thoughts on this as a, as an underrated aspect of chess improvement? Um. Yeah, I really love it because, like you said, it it just seems like a type of book that isn't really written that much anymore, um, and especially like annotated by like the own, uh, the, the player in question, you know, there's something really special about that. Not, uh, you know, some, you, you know what I'm ta- talking yeah, about. Yeah. Like, right? like Talbot Vanek 1960, where you're hearing Absolutely. about the world One championship the that was played by the person who played the world championship. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or like the life and games of, uh, Michael Tal, which is written in such a witty manner, you know, where he's talking to a journalist, which is really himself. Um, telling all sorts of anecdotes and uh, really great uh, and great an- annotations too. Very honest. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what I, I like about them. I mean, there's some annotators, like I can think of Botvinnik, for example, where you get the type of impression that he's omniscient and it kind of <laughs> feeds into that narrative. You know, I think we were talking Which about Which he might've been. <laughs> anyway. Maybe, uh, but Maybe. So, <laughs> but like, you you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for for instance, like when we were doing the how to play equal positions episode, not to go on too many tangents, like the whole narrative of like a game. Yeah, we never go on tangents single, in the show. Go pull, come no, on. not at all. I don't. I don't have like untreated ADHD that's gotten much worse uh, over the past few years. But anyway, um, neither do I. What we're talking <clears> about. <throat> Uh, I don't know. Um, but, like, you know, we were talking about the narrative that, like, a, a game could follow a single clean plan um, without, like, reassessing at a lot of different stages. Like, a lot of older books, like, 
think like a grandmaster play like a grandmaster would do. Um, and Botvinnik was kind of the same, but like there are annotators like uh, Keres, for instance, if we're talking about old school guys um, who really were very candid in their annotations. And like you get the impression that he was seeking the truth. Um, and in fact, that's it, that is kind of similar to the title of the second volume of his game collection, Paul Keres, The Quest for Perfection. Wow. So, yeah, I mean... It's interesting because uh, one of the things you brought up there was the idea of like following a game with like a, a logical idea, right? That you that you sort of see through to its end. And to right. me, that was one of the appeals of some of the early game collections that I read, which were yeah. all autobiographical. The very first one I ever read was Capablanca's My Chess Career. Mm-hmm. I think the second one was was either Mikhail Tall's Life and Games or. Um, it might have been one of Smith's loves. And what was so uh, helpful to me at that stage of my chess development was being able to hear the thoughts of the player who actually made the moves. Because what right. they're giving you is they're giving you a glimpse into like a lot of things. They're giving you a, gim- a glimpse into how they evaluate and view a position, mm-hmm. what what they prioritize, like what priorities they make and like what stands out to them or or what you know, what logical path did they follow? You know, like I considered X and then Y and then Z. And then when I put this together, here's what I came up with. Right. So it was sort of, um, it was sort of like a, uh, almost, almost some, something to replicate, you know, like I think of when I was a kid and I played basketball, I just tried to like copy what Michael Jordan's jumper looked like, you know what right. I mean? And, and this is sort of the same thing, but with chess, like you try to like understand the thinking patterns, try to understand what they're, uh, how they're approaching a position and how they're playing a position and what, and even just, even something as simple as like what moves they choose to pause and comment on, you know, like, oh, this is a position worthy of like thought or introspection or comment. Yeah. Especially, uh, with regards to the last thing as well, like things that are, um, that go, also uh that that are like passed over or like glossed over um yes what moves they choose to comment on like if you're learning actively like analyzing the game for yourself uh as along with playing you know along with annotations not just like blindly replaying the lines or like having an engine on in the background um i mean it's very helpful and like a lot of times too you'll see uh, for instance, in that Paul, aforementioned Paul Carey's game collection series, uh, Quest for Perfection and the Road to the Top. Mm-hmm. And you'll see, like, Nunn makes a lot of corrections in the annotations, which, like, it could it could look, you know, it could make the, the book look, look bad. I mean, just with all these, like, analytical notes or whatever. But when you're reading such books, especially the books written in the pre-computer era, like, you kind of have to take the author at, at, uh, at their... Uh, for their word, you know? Yeah, some degree of face value, right? Because they don't have the hindsight of an engine. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, as long as the annotators are candid, uh, like... Which in some strange way actually honestly makes the books more valuable. Right, yeah, because you get a fully human perspective, you know? You realize, like, sure, they are valuable. Like, for as great as they are, um, you know, we still love them. And, yeah, if anything, like, it's... It, it it should be comforting that such a great player could make you know certain errors in analysis and 
Sure. And also, if you think about it, like what's more beneficial to an improving student? You know, is it more beneficial to understand like in a, in a given position, you know, let's go 15 moves deep of engine perfect play, or is it better to hear the thoughts of a very strong player and how they assess the position, you know, go three, four, five moves deep, just sort of showing a variation to prove a point. And I would argue for the vast majority of improving players, the second one of those is that is just so, so much more beneficial. Uh-huh. Like it's not even, it's not even close. Right. Absolutely. Um, I don't need to see if I, if I'm a, a 15, 16, 17, 1800, I don't need to see 30 moves of computer perfect play to understand like some kind of, you know, um, crazy theoretical hold of right. a position, you know, I just want to understand, yeah. okay, like, you know, what should I be looking for? How should I evaluate this position? Um, you know, what, what, what's something that I can glean or gain from how this game was conducted? So in some ways, those older manuals are almost golden because they provide you that perspective and they don't have, I'm going to phrase this in a really weird way, but I think you'll see where I'm going with this. They don't have the burden of engine clarity. Right. Or that sort of artificial feeling, uh, right. the moves, you know, and uh, kind of going uh, along with that too, like the, the idea that like maybe some errors in the analysis might take away from the luster of the book. Um, a lot of yeah, times I don't buy I, into that at all. Right. Yeah. I know. I don't either. I mean, but like, like we were talking about like less experienced players or players newer to the game, they might be put off by it, you know, yeah. it's not modern or whatever, but um, a lot of times, and I, I think we've talked about this before. I don't know about necessarily on the podcast, but like if I'm playing in a tournament game, uh, and I like see a very beautiful, almost fantastic variation, but it has like only one refutation. Like, I don't really cry about it too much. Because, at all. Not at all. Yeah. No, because you see that it's like, uh, you know, you're seeing the board, right? And yes, you saw something, right. you're seeing possibilities. So like, if you see something like that, you know, don't be put off by the fact that, okay, there is a refutation. Right. Like, M- much later, the 3,500 computer finds a really complex and convoluted way to hold the position. Who cares? Right. Or, or I'm saying if you even refute your own line, uh, yeah. like, let's say you're playing, like I said, in the middle of a tournament game, right? You know, yeah. no use yeah, yeah. like crying about that because uh, it means you're seeing the board, you know? And like I said, there's a certain amount of face value. That you it's interesting. Play. I actually annotated a game I played one time. Um, I want to say the game was maybe like 2015. I was playing against um, someone who I think you know, Dan Brashaw, uh, mm-hmm. National Master Dan Brashaw from Iowa. And it was a King's Indian game. It was a very complicated line that I played. Oh, the Bishop E3 or something? or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bishop yeah. E3. And um, uh, there was a line that I played. And basically, in the post-game analysis, so so the Iowa Chess on Passant, which is a state magazine, asked me to write up the right. game. And so I was writing up the game and annotating it. And in the post-game analysis, I found a way for, for Dan basically to hold the position. But it was one of those convoluted, complicated computer lines. He's got a sack a piece pretty much immediately um, to just to defend. Um, and I remember the comment I wrote. I was like, basically, you know, you know, the difficulty of this variation just affirms to me that I played the position correctly. You know, like if if I'm having an advantage in every line except this one extremely hard-to-find variation, then I feel like, for practical purposes, I played this position right. I made the right choice here. Percentage, you know? yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so so anyway, yeah, I 100% agree with what you're saying there. Right. I mean, there, there are definitely authors, even before, like, the 3,500-level computers would come out, like, um, 
I believe the most notorious for uh, overanalyzing, you could say, would be uh, Hubner, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote a famous game collection, probably... It was like called 25 annotated games, I believe, but like at least 500 pages or something like that. Something absurd. It would be like 25 pages per game. Wow. Uh, Kamsky's is like that as well. He has a series by Thinkers Publishing uh, that has came out. There's, I think it's called Chess Gamer. So there's one in his early years, uh, one up to 2013, and then the next volume is coming out soon or it might be out already. Um, Okay. 2013 to present, but like, he devotes, like, I remember I saw 13 pages for one game. It's quite a bit, but, like, he does it in a way that, it, I don't know, I, I really could feel, yeah, you, you could just feel him through those variations. Um, Hubner, too, I guess, because he put in such painstaking work. But, yeah, there is a point where I've talked to people about that specific Kamsky game collection, and they'd be like, oh, it's too much. And, you know, you have to take, again, some face value. Like, you can... You're get, if you're getting something out of it, it was worth it. It doesn't have to be every single line you have to play through, you know? Right, that's true. You can you can sort of, especially as you continue to improve, you can parse your way through a book. You know, right. one series that, have you have you read Kasparov's um, My Great Predecessor series? Absolutely, yeah. To me, that's one that kind of like toes both lines. Um, yeah, Kasparov sure. does, does include sort of some lengthy variations and... Um, uh, I, I don't know if they were necessarily engine lines, but let's just say let's just call them some high level lines, right? Where he right. discusses them. But at the yeah, same time, ish. Yeah, two thousand. That sounds about right, actually. That so was that, like the first volume, I think, or something. Correct. And for those listeners who aren't familiar, this is a series Kasparov wrote on all of the world champions that preceded him. Hence the title, "My Great Predecessors," um, and he shows some of their you know more famous games. Um, it's it's actually a great read. I, I strongly recommend what. What sort of drew my attention to that was, you know, your comment about you can sort of take take what you can. And to me, that's a book where you can do that. You know, Kasparov does give some very nice, concise commentary on some of the games. He also goes into some pretty deep lines at times. It's an interesting sort of balance between, and I guess it's no surprise because it was written, you know, right around the time when engines were really becoming prevalent and super strong, right? 2005, 2006. Um so it's kind of like almost a bridge book between the before and the after engine era. Right, yeah. And, or and bridge series, I should say. Oh, for sure. And um, like, it, <clears throat> I seem to remember also that it was sparking quite a bit of uh, analytical debate online as well. Like, I remember seeing an article like Russian Construction Worker. On, it was on Chessbase. Do you remember this? It was like Russian Construction Worker finds like all these flaws in Kasparov's analysis. I mean... And like it was interesting to see <laughs> Russian construction worker with Fritz Five or something, right? I look. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, maybe I mean, not. I mean, maybe not. Just a funny, funny article title, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, but like again, it doesn't really take away from the luster of of that series because it, it is a beautiful series. Um, and I mean, from the historical point of view as well, like you, yeah, you, like one of the greatest to ever do it, you know, on his colleagues, right. And yeah, for sure. predecessors, perhaps more accurate, but, um, but yeah, I love that. All right. So, uh, the second one we have on our list here might surprise some listeners, but I can say as, as myself, a very experienced chess coach, as well as someone who has spent a good portion of my life trying to be a chess improver, mm-hmm. um, 
this is one that's super important. And as a coach, I can say this is one that is often overlooked or especially the topic we're discussing, which is undervalued. I don't think enough emphasis or value is put on this particular element of chess development and chess improvement, which is regular competitive play. Mm -hmm. Competitive meaning like actual over-the-board tournaments. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, as somebody who is prone to like certain ups and downs due to a lack of competitive play, I'd have to disagree. No, I'm just, of course I agree. <laughs> like I would say that is one of the biggest uh, things that has hampered, uh, you know, hampered my chess career, like a lack of competitive play. Um, yeah. Because, you know, when things are, are going well, you just kind of remember how you're, you're thinking about things, you're feeling things, you're sensing the moment of when to take certain chances, like what's the acceptable line of risk. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's just so many things that make me smile. And like, I, I just remember after like good tournament, uh, feeling disappointed that I had to go back to the real world, you know? Right. Yeah. But, like yeah, I've got to return to the grind. <laughs> I played so well. I just want to stay and keep playing. Or just the, you know, how uh, monotonous sometimes day-to-day life can be uh, without the tournament. But, but yeah, it, 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 it's super important. You know, it, it's weird to me because this one seems like such an intuitive one. Like, mm-hmm. of course you have to play, right? <clears throat> but I think a lot of players, you know, one of the things that I hear, and I've heard this not just from like a chess parent, right? So like I'm coaching right. a, a fifth grader or whatever. Um, but I hear this not just from a chess parent, but I've heard this from like adults as well. Okay. Um, which is, I don't think I'm ready yet. And I think that's just absolutely the wrong or, or is my kid ready? You know, I don't, I'm not sure if, you know, little Timmy is ready yet for his first tournament. And I think that's just such the, such the wrong mentality, you know, Mm -hmm. especially, um, so I guess maybe especially from the perspective, um, of, of someone who's trying to get better, you know, would you, would you attempt to play a musical instrument without playing it? Right. Of course not. You know, would you would you expect to get better at uh, soccer or basketball without going out and playing a game? Right. Of course not. Um, And the same is true for chess. You know, for some reason, there's like almost this like barrier or pedestal that we put tournaments on and competitive play on. And I really think that that slows down or even in some cases prohibits like proper chess development for a variety of reasons. Right. I mean, you're putting yourself out there. Um, Man in the arena. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're in the arena. And I mean, it's not going to be, I, I don't know. It it, it, de- it depends on a feeling. I mean, it, it just, like, I, I can't explain it. Like, it's so absurd to me. Uh, but I mean, at the same time, okay, like, I've, I've kind of done that. But I mean, you know, maybe being more pressed in like certain issues or like mentally I wasn't there, you know, that's speaking from a person, like an experienced competitor, but like, you know, to, yeah, like that to what's the worst that could happen if you, if you just play, uh, and you think you're not ready, like, like how would the, the parent often who doesn't play chess know that their child is ready? Right. Yeah. That's a very valid question, right? Like at what point do you become ready? Yeah. Right. And, and without also knowing the setting, like who knows, maybe, you know, little uh, Timmy or whatever his name is. Uh, I believe that is the name I gave him, yes. Right, yeah. Like, he hasn't been under those lights. Like, you know, he could shine. 
Friday Night Lights. <laughs> exactly. Saturday, that's what you know. What that's what we need. We need a a docudrama called Saturday Night Lights. Instead of being about Texas high school football, it's about American Weekend Swiss chess tournaments. Oh boy! Netflix, and, you you got my number. And uh, foam sword fighting. Uh, I absolutely think that should be a part of it. Yes. Yeah. And I'm happy absolutely. to direct that particular episode, Netflix, when you, mm-hmm. when you call. Yeah. You know, so what I think the reason for this here, or the, the idea or the theory behind it. So I'm going to go like, I'm going to start off on like a base level and then I'm going to go kind of meta. So the base level yeah. is, and this is what I tell parents all the time. Like, look, you know, uh, I, I see your student, I see your kid once, maybe twice a week. I see my chess club for about an hour. And then I see him for our private lesson for about an hour, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a couple hours of working on your chess. You go and play a tournament on the weekend. You're with your comrades. You know, you're playing in between games. You maybe just mess around, play a practice game. Uh, you, you've got four or five rounds that day at a scholastic tournament. You're reviewing the games with the coach in between. Think about how much chess improvement they're getting from one day, right? So that's sort of the base level. Uh-huh. But then if we, if we go up a notch, and this is, the, this is sort of the really, in my opinion, the important pedagogical idea here, which is at some point you have to have synthesis, okay? You can have knowledge, you can have information, you can be great at tactics, you can know every chessable opening course known to man, but unless you can put it all together in a cognizant, like, you know, laid out way in a competitive in a competitive environment, you're not going to be any good at chess, which I think is hard for some people to like wrap their minds around for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea of synthesis, like synthesizing not just the information and knowledge that you have, but also synthesizing it in the moment, right? Making the right priority, making the right decision. And by the way, interesting <laughs> connection here with game collections, right? This is why I like games collection collections so much, because they focus on those moments of synthesis. In this position, here's what I prioritize. Here's the variations I considered. Here's the one I chose. And here's why. Right? Yeah. What is the author telling you there? They're telling you, here's how I synthesize all of my chess knowledge and playing skill into this one moment to play the correct plan. Absolutely. I just blew your mind, I can tell. because I quiet. know. I'm, yeah. It's... That's the sign I mean, that I'm, I'm still even mind. stuck on, like, how good your first point was. Like, how much chess improvement like you're you're getting it in that specific scenario you know i never i never even thought about it that way i've just more like guffawed at the idea in the past and just <laughs> express my opinions through anger the only way i know how <laughs> so let me play the, the chess parent speaking to gopal at, at the event so i'll give you an, an opportunity to actually guffaw at me uh you know but but coach menon you know my my this is little a family timmy friendly here. podcast story. correct and you so, and your little timmy can well, we can go to, to heck. I, I thought you were just going to actually, you know, say the word guffaw multiple times at me. Oh, I, you know, I can. Like a I cathartic moment, to... right? You know, like just actually guffaw at someone. Have you ever actually guffawed at anyone? Uh, physically? Yes. Mm, maybe. Uh, mentally? Always. Mentally always, but like to actually physically get it out, right? You know? Maybe we have a new therapy technique that we have designed here. You know, it's probably, yeah, I mean, yeah, probably it's, you know, there's a lot of disassociation um, when I'm at chess tournaments or like (laughs) just, just from everybody else, not, you know, (laughs) 
I don't know why that's so funny. Because <laughs> it's so it's so true. There's a lot of disassociation at chess tournaments. Yeah, it is right. true. That's right. Because yeah, you know like, you're yeah. the hot you're the hot girl at the bar, right? So yeah. Um, I mean, also sometimes like when uh, a chess parent comes with that kind of uh, mentality, you know, I'm just trying not to let it infect me. I guess mm-hmm. it's it's me trying to preserve. Um, what I think uh, a competitive player should be, because uh, I, you know, I would lo- love to still be a competitive player, for, and, and I love teach as much as I love teaching. But like Alex Cholovich, Macedonian grandmaster, in one of his uh, weekly emails, he writes uh, just like his thoughts on chess, uh, describes a teacher as having to be very sympathetic, but um, a professional player as like a bird of prey. Yeah, that's quite the dichotomy if you're trying to do both, isn't it? Right, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, the, in you know, it, in seriousness, I'm trying not to, as somebody with my own anxiety, like I try not to let that infect me. Um, yeah, that's yeah. really fascinating, right? To try to to try to be both that have that killer instinct, but also then you kind of almost Nurture have to like her. shift gears, right? You have to, yeah, you have to completely change your entire modus operandi maybe that's why i'm a, i'm i'm a former or current slash former chess teacher because i'm so gemini oh you're so raven is what you are <laughs> um i mean plus like like let's be honest too those 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 conversations uh usually happen when you're like foot is halfway out the door you know like not not like with the student just physically from the place where you're teaching it and so you're yes. like i got stuff to do right we don't even have time to eat an apple. Do we ever, though, is the real question. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so regular so, competitive play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, how about it, that competitive play? How about yeah? that competitive play? And got some, got some competitive. I mean, but, you know, think about it. I mean, I, I can't tell you um, how many adult improvers I've worked with over the years who I've, I've really encouraged, you know, just get out there and play some games, you know? It's, it's okay. You know, it's not always going to go um, as you're hoping or expecting even the first time around. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're just doing right. yourself a service. You're, you're putting your improvement on steroids is what you're doing. Um, yeah. You're, you're presenting yourself the opportunity uh, to, to be vulnerable, which is hard, I think, for a lot of people. But oh, yeah. in that moment, there's also a lot of, a lot of growth that can happen. And I, and I think it's just so critical and it's, and it's undervalued, you know, I'm just shocked at, you know, Oh yeah, I I play online. I do all my tactics. I've got 17 chessable courses and 42 books, you know, and whatever, and this and that. Well, until you have that moment of vulnerability and synthesis and, and do it again and again, it's going to be harder to, to really actually have those improvements stick, I think is, is the, is the point. Of course. And it, it goes hand in hand with like being able to honestly and okay to correctly diagnose mistakes is, is one thing, right? Cause mm-hmm. like we've all had that game where like the student had a rotten position from a positional perspective and they blundered a piece like, Oh, I just missed a move. Well, no, you, yeah, you didn't miss that move. It was, exactly. Yeah, the, the exactly. plot was lost several turns ago. The yeah. finger wasn't even on the pulse or not even close. So like, that's one thing. And like, once you have those mistakes diagnosed, honestly, uh, to be able to like, you know, look yourself in the mirror, which I guess is part of being vulnerable, you know, apart from like accepting 
uh, certain setbacks and whatnot. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that, that I think that's another one of the hard things for for honestly both levels, adults and 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 students. Um, I think it's very difficult to accept and understand that there will be setbacks. Uh, really, truly, in any area of life, right? This is difficult, but yeah. especially in chess, you know, like there's no, you're not going to have a, a linear rating graph, just like nobody does. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be up and down. It's going to be peaks and valleys. And that's like completely natural and normal. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but accepting that as, as sort of part of par for the course and part of putting yourself out there, I think can be um, daunting. I think, can, you know, that's probably the right word. It can be daunting. Absolutely. All right. More thoughts on this or shall we move on? I've, we've got two more on the list here and I, and I think they're both very interesting. I, I, yeah, I think we, I think that topic, uh, we have beaten God, that, I hate, that I hate horse. That. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I was going to say it speaks for itself, but like, it should, it should. That's the point, right? But I hate, you know, you can't use that word without that, you know, just everybody like, you know, shut up. That is a, that is a fantastic impression. I thoroughly approve. No, no, I, it's I, not would, even I would argue that that was a people. physical guffaw. Exactly. Well, yeah, I'm guffawing at the idea that like people still think that, that is, that meme is funny. Like, no, even though we did talk about it once on this podcast. Oh, I forgot is. that was a meme. I was just saying that like, uh, as an organic moment of conversation, I completely oh, no, no, forgot oh, no, about no, the no. chess speaks for itself. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Oh my gosh. I just inadvertently dropped a chess speaks for itself meme. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, that's that's what I was talking about this this whole I time. I was going to say wow. it speaks for itself, but you know. oh my gosh, I can't even believe that I did that without being aware of it. How can you be on a chess podcast in 2023 and not recognize the speaks for itself meme? It's I have to turn in my chess podcast. It, oh, you're so right. Wow, I was going to say. Speaking I have to turn of disassociating, maybe we should disassociate from this topic. I agree. Let's move on. So I have two more here, and I'm not sure which order I want to do them in, but I think I'm going to go with this one next because it's very intriguing to me. No, 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 no. This one's too good. I'm going to save it. So the listeners, you just there's your cliffhanger. You're going to have to wait because I want you to listen to the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could just fast forward, whatever. I okay, guess so the listeners will have to be like Mumford and Sons, like that that one horrible song that they have. I'm unfamiliar. They just keep saying, like, I will wait for you over and over again. Oh, Oh, this God, is probably why I don't listen to Mumford and Sons. Oh, thank God. Um, okay, so the next one on the list, then, in that case, would be uh, finding a good sparring partner. <clears throat> and this one, I think, is maybe... Um, I don't necessarily know that I want to say controversial, because you might say, well, I think, you know, this is maybe appreciated, and so is it really undervalued? Um, but what are your thoughts on that one? You know, honestly, I mean... For a lot of people, I mean, at least myself, it, it kind of was a controversial one for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I totally see the benefits of it. Um, I mean, from the perspective of like a study buddy or a starter or like sparring partner, um, for a while, I kind of didn't subscribe to that idea because like, y- you know me, I'm not like a Dale Gribble level of paranoid, but I mean... I kind of am sometimes with like giving away certain ideas in the opening, like especially as I've gotten better at preparing and like doing seconding work for like certain strong players, like, you know, you got to pay for the good ideas. Right. Um, But okay. On the other hand, you know, we get like 
I mean, apart, like, let's just forget about that. But like, apart from somebody, secretive opening prep, right? You know, or yeah, whether or not, uh, you know, I am a Dale Gribble level paranoid. Um, oh yes, right, right. Um, you know, you have somebody for accountability purposes, like encouragement. Yeah. You know, encouragement, keeping you on task, um, and and also, you know, we just talked about in in the previous topic the peaks and valleys of chess improvement, right? Right. I think that's also a big part of it is, you know, somebody to help get you through those very difficult, because we know they're coming, right? Like we know yeah. they're they're on the horizon. They might be just around the corner. And it's useful to have somebody who you can, um, you know, in those moments, either work on something with or just, you know, um, ha- have a frank conversation with or or bounce ideas off of. Right? right. A sparring partner can be a variety of things. It's not just somebody who you play training games with, although you should do that too. Yes. It's not necessarily just that. There's intention also games, yeah. intention. Yeah, exactly. Like we're going to look at this line. We're going to play it a billion times, you know, right. that sort of thing. But it's not just that, right? There's other, <coughs> there's other like aspects to having like a true good, you know, sp- sparring partner who is really um, helping you improve your chess. Beyond right. beyond just the hey, let's play a game right now. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, so why do I think this is undervalued? I think that's an important question because you know I think definitely most chess improvers are aware of or familiar with the value of having a partner like this. I guess I would say the main reason I think it's undervalued is similarly to the previous topic that we discussed about um, playing regularly, right? Um, because of the nature of chess improvement, chess tends to be like sort of a solitary game. Chess improvement a lot of times, even if it's not like openings, you know, that you want to keep a secret or whatever, but chess improvement can be a very intensely personal and private thing. You know, if, <laughs> have you ever seen, I know you love chess Twitter so much. I'm sure you've seen some of those, you know, pictures that people post of like, this is my chess study area, right? And it's like one chair, not two, one chair and a table oh. in a corner. You know what I mean? Wow. That's a lot for a solitary game. <laughs> but you know you know what i mean like it's very um it's this very private uh even in the way even in the images that we as chess improvers choose to present to the world mm-hmm. um even those sort of showcase the the lonesome nature of, that that a lot of players adopt when they go through their own chess improvement experience but you know you're never lonely when you have the internet or just Twitter. Um, I mean, okay, hashtag like, go Paul truths has, yes. hashtag go Paul truth bomb. Exactly. Um, look, I mean, okay. People can present whatever, uh, you know, whatever like polished image of, of chess study or whatever, you know, that, that they have like some nice room, some like beautiful board, you know, a nice chair, two chairs, perhaps. Um, oh, let's not get crazy here. Oh, uh, yeah. But, I mean, really, I mean, my favorite is just, like, there's even a picture of, uh, of Vlad- Vladko and I in the bed I it, it, when we were just preparing with our computers on our our stomachs. <laughs> just, like, or it was, oh, no. That I was think, you know what's funny? That was, at, that was at your uh, at your old place. Oh, yeah, yeah. That That was probably one of the most fun chess things was that chess camp. Yeah. Um, what's funny is I, th- I wonder what 
listeners who maybe are new to the chess boom or, you know, uh, haven't played these competitive events think about when they hear you say in the bed with the computer. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we have to set the scene a little bit because this is actually like it's kind of a, a strange, quirky thing How to competitive describe? American chess, right? Like, yeah, you don't really have time to like go somewhere proper, like a coffee shop to prepare. You don't really have the resources for a weekend tournament to like have your own like study room at the hotel. 15 or 30 minutes maximum. In between games, you have a serious opponent coming up whose identity you know and therefore can prepare for, right? So what what is your option, Gopal? What do you do? Let us know. How does it work? Give us the image. Um, I mean, not even just limited to that, but like basically... You know, you're exhausted from the round. I mean, you're, I mean, the tournament schedule has been riding you like a, I don't know, insert some, you know, partly vulgar, partly family friendly joke about an animal that you ride or the joke speaks for itself. My ex wife. Or, yeah. But anyway, so uh, basically, like you're tired and, you know, you just want to lay down, but like you can't fall asleep. But so you, because you have to play another tournament game for four hours. Exactly, you have to. Right. You just have to have your. You're sitting kind of upright, I guess, to prevent yourself from falling asleep. But you're kind of lying down, and your computer is on your stomach, and you're. Yeah, you know, this way you can also have conversations too. Your head is against the the headboard of the hotel yes, bed. Exactly. And you're you're vaguely tabbing through variations on some <laughs> online chess database while contemplating what you want to use against this upcoming opponent. Tabbing enhances nervously. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, that's what it's like, right? I mean, that's what it's like in between rounds at one of these, you know, um, quote unquote, prestigious open events um, where you have limited time to prep. You have limited resources and space, even physical space to do so. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay, any any further or final thoughts on a sparring partner as an underrated aspect of chess improvement? Mm, no, I think we basically have it all. I mean, apart from like, also, I guess one thing to touch on briefly would be a different perspective, like in terms of uh, backgrounds of chess training that both players have had, like assuming maybe both players have had good some point. coaching, you know, um, even... I don't know if we've talked about it on this podcast, but like we've talked about certain, or at least you and I, we've talked about certain regions, maybe having different styles or like countries. Um, yeah, that's an excellent point. Finding right. sometimes complementary as opposed to similar. <clears throat> right. Exactly. Yeah. That's that all ties in with like a different perspective. That's so valuable. Right. And you can find that, you know, you can find that in a, in a training partner. I think that's a yeah. really excellent point. Um, even sometimes like, you know, personality wise is something to consider, you know, not just, um, complimentary, complimentary, but also, you know, um, able, able to progress, you know, able to progress together when you're, when you're looking at a position or considering as a particular thing. Um, yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, okay. I think we covered that one, like a hush puppy and honey mustard sauce. What do you think? Uh, Yeah. That's an Iowism. I've got I've got tons of Iowisms. What's another one that's maybe like uh, that and, uh, being friendly? 
Oh, okay. Uh, well, you know, hush puppies could be vegetarian, although probably not vegan. No, it's the honey mustard. The honey is an animal product, but... Um... Oh, oh, wow, man. They get you every, every which way from sundown. Another good... Here's another good one. It's not about covering anything, but this is perhaps my favorite Iowaism. Okay. So, like, someone says something that's, oh, like, I sort guess? of... Oh, sure. No, go yeah. ahead. No, no, or, go. Okay, I, I want to hear your guess. Uh, well, we covered that, like, uh, tahini on a falafel sandwich... That is very vegan friendly, I think. Yes, and very Iowa friendly as well. Um, yeah, I maybe. Suppose, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, why if not? You're not from yeah. the Midwest, you know. Just believe me. Anyway. Take your word for it. No, my favorite Iowism has nothing to do with covering anything. It's uh, so like, let's say somebody says something like really vapid that perhaps you maybe even like disagree with a little bit. Mm-hmm. You say, well, that that and a quarter will get you a twenty-five cent cup of gas station coffee. Oh my god. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I'm getting. Oh, it's the it's the crit. The second. So I'm I'm gonna move on to the last Please. topic here, so we can save you from this uh, uh, rabbit hole. Um, and I and I have words written down for this final topic, which I'm very interested to talk about, but I don't really know the right way to put it. So I'm gonna put it the way I have written, and then I'm gonna offer like an alternate version. <clears throat> so again, the topic underrated, undervalued aspects of chess improvement, right? Mm-hmm. The last, uh, the final thing on the list here, I just have fighter mentality. Okay. And then maybe even an alternate take would be like expectations of battle. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. What do you, uh, how do you feel like uh, do, uh, that differs from, um, the competitive play section. So I think it, I think it builds on it and it highlights something that okay. if you, if you want to improve, you need to sort of expect this. Um, 16 things to expect for rapid chess, improvement. chess improvement. Oh, we have a great you Twitter thread. Slash blog seven. <laughs> um, so I guess where I'm going with this, one of the things that comes into my mind is like, there's, there's this great quote that one of my friends and mutual acquaintance, Brian Wall, said one time, Yeah, which was, I would never be a chess master if I lost all the games I was supposed to lose. Right. And like understanding that chess is messy, chess is muddy. It's not always going to go smoothly or perfectly. You're not, right. you know, you, you can't be a perfectionist. Um, Sometimes you have to be practical. Sometimes you have to get a little bloody, you know? Yeah. Um, And that goes not just for competitive play, I would say, but that goes for almost all aspects of of chess improvement, you know? Mm -hmm. There are going to be things that you struggle with. Time management, maybe. Absolutely. Um, Just just at me next time, you know? Maybe, like, particular particular, uh, uh, pawn structures. Or uh, end game arrangements, you know, in mm-hmm. in game piece piece uh, correlations, right. um, and I think you know having a, a fighter mentality, like understanding that there's a lot more fight in this game than one might expect from like a quiet, you know, almost sedate board game, really yes. will serve students very well, and I think that that's. 
um, not necessarily particularly highlighted or discussed too often in, in chess improvement. Yeah, absolutely. I or mean, as much as it should be. Maybe it's even if it's discussed often, maybe not as much as it should be. For sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, like the, the stakes can be raised almost uh, no matter what. And I mean, during the game, it, it's hard to find everything super clear. You know, that's kind of why those sort of omniscient uh, uh, annotators such as like Botvinnik or Aliakin, I mean, which I loved, I love Aliakin's game collection for the chess mostly, but like you kind of have to know when he was exaggerating. Um, but like, yeah. you know, during the game, it, the, the tension is so high, you feel like it's possible to blunder anything maybe. Yeah. You know? Especially once you've, you've seen a lot, like. Uh, Even just accepting that, right? What a great quote. It's possible to blunder anything, right? Yeah. Just accepting that and understanding what that means. You know, that means what are the things that that intrinsically means? Like vigilance is important, <clears throat> right? Yeah. I remember one of my favorite things that I was, uh, one of my favorite points of yours that I espoused for a while that you were uh, talking about with uh, some of your students in terms of playing tendencies. Like mm -hmm. you asked, what is, uh, what do you guys think the best quality a chess player could have? Um, and like, for you, it was, uh, man, for somebody who told a lot of students this. Uh, I know exactly what patient. word it was. Uh, it's close to patience. Um, oh, my God. How am I blanking on this right now? Please, uh, lifeline? Uh, carefulness. Care being careful. Yes, being careful. That's it. Yeah. Yes. Because um, everything else goes out the window if you're not careful, right? Like, right. you can be brilliant and you can be careless and you'll lose. You, know, you right, can have exactly. extensive like uh, technical knowledge and be careless and you'll lose. So the most, the most or important trait, yeah, haphazard, right. Exactly. Uh, and I would say that that, that transfers not just to playing games, like taking mm -hmm. care of your clock, um, being careful in your, in your move technique and analysis. But I would say that that also transfers to studying, right? Like being careful and paying attention to details when you're studying in particular, you know, not, right. not glossing over and potentially missing an important line or a particular important concept. Um, yeah, I think that's probably, especially for improving players, yeah. I, I would stand by that. I would stand by that. Although, you know, one of my favorite all-time chess quotes is from the book Training for the Tournament Player. Are you familiar with this book? Absolutely. There's a section in there on... Um, uh, I think it's on defending, if I remember correctly. I can't remember the section header, but essentially the, the Wait, traits... are you talking about the, the art of the middle game? No, 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 no. This is, this is uh, training for the tournament player. Okay, Dvoritsky Yusupov. Yes, and I believe it might have even been a Yusupov, Yusupov chapter. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, he lists three traits, and the three traits that he lists are composure. Oh, that's right. It is this book, yep. Presence of mind and determination. He calls it dogged determination. Dogged determination. Yeah. Yes. So, like, you could pick. Honestly, you could pick any of those three, and and uh, and say that that's the most important chess trait. And I probably wouldn't argue with you. Like composure, maybe the most important chess trait. Presence of mind, right? Like, how can you not? If you don't have that presence, if you don't have that awareness, you know, how can you not? Uh, how can you play well? Yeah. And then determination, serious. right? Like. That's the fighter dogged mentality that we're talking yeah. about. Exactly. That dogged determination. So like all three of those, right? Mm -hmm. um, but even then, right? If you're all three of those things and you're not careful, will it go well for you? I don't know. 
Yeah. It's, it's an interesting <laughs> thought, right? It's kind yeah. of like sort of like basic, but on the other hand, maybe it's, maybe it's true. And, you know, like any time, uh, like how this all started was we were talking about, um, uh, what is it like possible to blunder anything. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, that's how we got the conversation about being careful and all that stuff. Like yeah. anytime somebody wants to see, like even, even the best players in the world, uh, kind of like losing composure, you know, or, or just like blundering surprisingly in like a lot of random moments. I mean, look at games, like one of my favorite games, uh, for years was or one of my, sorry, one of my favorite tournaments for years was the world cup. Yeah. Because, uh, at a certain point, like, you know, when you and I first became acquainted, for example, it was kind of a rarity to see 2,700 players in like an open Swiss. So like, yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. And yeah, these tournaments show, uh, some of the most valuable games, what I've been saying for years, where you see this big rating disparity and you see the, the difference in class, like with, opening prep and uh overall knowledge and just uh certain decision making um how it kind of differs and yeah like i just playing over games from the first few rounds of the world cup i mean even the subsequent rounds just maybe not so much the rapid tiebreak games but you'll see quite a few meltdowns in classical games yeah that's true you know that's, and that's mm-hmm. the, that's like one of the highest stakes tournaments there could possibly be yeah, although I guess maybe in some regards that lends credit to Yusupov's, uh, or maybe it was Dvoretsky's listing of composure as number one. Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, to, to bring it, to, to sort of bring it back here, I think... It could the, be mental preparation, you know? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but, like, that could be a really underrated aspect of chess improvement, just overall mental preparation. Uh, I like it. That That's what I was going for with the spider mentality. Yes, yeah. that's... That's a better um, title, I think, for this particular thing, right? And mental preparation, you know, some, I think it's important to understand, maybe, maybe, the, maybe here's the title, understanding mental preparation mm-hmm. is the underrated or undervalued aspect of chess improvement, understanding mental preparation. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, there's a variety of things to go into it. It's, it's mentality, it's approach, um, it's composure, it's taking care, right? Um, it's paying attention to details. Um, yeah, I like that. Understanding mental preparation. Does that? Yeah. Does that? Maybe does that get get at what we're trying to get at? Hey, this ain't checkers. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. All right. That was enough of that. Um, <laughs> uh, yes. I hate it. Uh, All right. I think that's pretty good. I think we covered it pretty well there. Any, any final thoughts on, on those four things? So again, under, underrated, undervalued. Let's recap. Underrated, undervalued aspects of chess improvement. Number one, we talked about games collections. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, we talked about regular competitive play. Mm-hmm. How important that is, going to tournaments, you know, whatever. <clears throat> number three, finding a good sparring partner. You know, complimentary, yes. having that person there, not just to, to bounce ideas off and push you, but hold you accountable. Um, number four, uh, my initial attempt, my initial essay was fighter mentality, but then we kind of whittled it down and distilled it. We sought the truth, one might say. Right. And we're going with something along the lines of understanding mental preparation. Absolutely. It seems um, like a pretty good list. It's almost like sure. we prepared this. Yeah. It almost sounds like we prepared it, except for maybe the last few minutes. Um, 
just for like, so talking about chess improvement, I just figured we could uh, end on a note of like, again, just putting a, a specific list of resources that were mentioned earlier. Like, yeah. so with the, as far as the games collections um, are concerned, you know, some of the readers could look these uh, things up and it's like actionable steps towards chess improvement. Um, you talked about Capablanca's My Chess Career. Mm-hmm. You talked about uh, Life and Games of Mikhail Tal. We both did. Uh, so you talked about Smyslov's Best Games. My chess, uh, yeah, were there any books you wanted to mention that we didn't bring up there? <clears throat> um, you know, I'd say like for modern annotators, uh, Robert, or sorry, um, Marine, like he goes in like very painstaking depth. That's for very, very ambitious players like 2000, 2100, you know, mm-hmm. Even like for me, it's quite a lot, but it just shows like kind of the, even if maybe it's not super practical, it just shows you the kind of depth and like uh, care that that goes into every move, just fighting for every inch and like, like, let's say a static position, you know, where not much is happening. Um, Yeah. So like, I mean, stuff by Marine, like he had learned from the legends, which is just kind of highlighting uh, one of each, a trademark of like each of the world champions. Um, Okay. That's great. And yeah, like I said, I really loved uh, Karis's books, The Road to the Top and The Quest for Perfection, because he wrote, like I said, in a very candid and honest manner, and he was very thorough in his explanations and, you know, played a, had a very wide repertoire. So, like, you get a look at a lot of different positions. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Kapal, this has been fun as always. Um we have a really, I think, what's going to be a very exciting uh, episode idea coming up in February. Um, so we will see you all then. In the meantime, happy 2023. And uh, I think, Gopal, as I mentioned, this is going to be wrapping up the fourth year of the podcast, moving into the fifth. It's been quite a ride. Absolutely. Thanks for being here, as always. Uh, for National Master Gopal Menon. I am National Master Pete Karianis. Uh, please continue to check out all of the U.S. Chess suite of podcasts, and we will see you next time. Tactical struggle. Love you. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. Chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis. <laughs>